0: So kind of just figuring out, okay, who these people are, what are they like? And we were just, you know, kind of playing a part of tourists who were also there for, you know, that type of fun, but maybe not at that level. In other words, not with minors. And, you know, after a few hours, and keep in mind, this is after months of other operators building up this level of rapport, right? We didn't just jump in and start hanging out with these guys. I just jumped into an existing case. And
1: Today on the show, I've got Andy Nunez. Andy, thanks for making time. Absolutely. My pleasure to be here. So in addition to your tech entrepreneurship and many other things you've accomplished in life, I think, as we talked about before, maybe the main emphasis of this interview is going to be about some of the undercover operations you've done, helping rescue kids from child trafficking and exploitation in Central and South America. I guess probably the first place to start is asking people how you found out about the issue.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I first learned about human trafficking in 2011. Through a movie called *Nefarious*, and it kind of w- opened my eyes to to the issue at large, to the issue of sexual exploitation and, and slavery around the world. And I definitely wanted to to do something about it. At the time, I was uh, just about to get married, just about to start a career in, in software, and didn't really know where to start. But connected with some awesome people who started to simply reach out to to girls that were being um, sold in their area, uh, reach out to them, give them a way out. And we really learned a lot by just being around that environment and starting to do that ourselves in our area. And then down the road, we connected with a couple of orgs. And one of those organizations started doing or was doing undercover operations uh, throughout Latin America to really rescue girls, particularly minors that were caught in the sex slave trade. And so my first opportunity to to go on one of those was pretty eye-opening. And it really, the, the first experience that I had was... Was actually going going undercover first with a pedophile, so that was uh, not a fun experience, but it's very it was very enlightening as far as what what the face of this issue is, is particularly in, in Latin America and a lot of more vulnerable countries and communities, and uh, and then we on that same trip we we started working on basically developing intel on on a trafficking group and working you know to to start to sort of infiltrate and and get to know these people and and get them to, to offer up some some minors for sale and through that experience i was pretty shocked to find out that all the traffickers that we met up with were women and that wasn't really it didn't really match up with what i'd seen in the movies it, it wasn't the typical scenario that you imagine but that kind of made me realize that human trafficking and sexual exploitation it is not maybe what we, what exactly we think it is. Maybe it looks a lot different. And the way that we fight it is maybe not busting down doors. Maybe it looks a lot differently than that. Maybe not quite as sexy as, as Hollywood has has made it.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, first of all, we are so excited to, you know, our charity Child Rescue that our listeners have heard a lot about. We are excited to have been able to donate money to some of these trips that you were able to do. And, uh, you know, I think about Having, having visited some of the aftercare facilities down there and some of these things, it was interesting. You know, I'd been working on the issue for years. Obviously, my mother-in-law had been trafficked and we have the family story. But something right. about being there and, and even just like going to the park with one of the kids and her mom, you know, and, and walking past all the poverty and like realizing, oh, that's why these people are so vulnerable. It was, yeah, it was different than the movies, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, and,
0: and really when you when you start to get in there you start to see that poverty poverty is really behind so many of these vulnerable situations and start to see how you know I start I noticed in, in several ops how a lot of the underage girls that that were being offered sometimes their parents were implicit in it they were in on the take in many cases and so you know it, it's there's a cultural element to that there's there's a economic element to that and it, it's pretty complex. It's not as simple as just going back, going after the bad guys, right?
1: Yeah. So for people who don't have maybe a background in this world, when you say developing intel, what does that look like?
0: Yeah, good question. So there's there's obviously a lot of different ways to develop intel, and I'm definitely not a law enforcement officer. Actually, my dad was, so I kind of grew up, you know, really keen and interested in the world of law enforcement. But really, a lot of the the intel that that I saw developed and was part of developing was really a a grassroots working with maybe local informants, just getting in there and getting onto the streets and starting to talk to people and just play a role. It's really about role playing, almost acting a certain part so that people, you know, share information with you because they have some interest in doing so. And so a lot of, you know, I've even been in situations where uh, we would just hop into a cab late at night and just uh, start hitting the cab driver up and, Hey, what do you know? What do you got? And, you know, start asking about drugs, start asking about girls. And a lot of times the the taxi drivers are are very well connected and they can uh, call up their boss or call up someone that they're connected with and pretty much offer you whatever you want. In a lot of places in Latin America, you can, you can find there there's kind of an inner network there's those who will help you get drugs and, and girls and stuff like that. And then there's those within that network who will help you get underage girls. And so it takes a lot of work and kind of validating your your own story in order to, to get that information and get those contacts.
1: Yeah. And, you know, maybe something to cover up front, because I'm guessing it's going to be a question in people's minds. Can you talk about the difficulties of working with the law enforcement and how you can't just work with any cops and when doing this? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So that that's a really frustrating
0: part of of working, in at least in Latin America, and I'm sure that that's the case in, in many developing parts of the world. You know the, there there's a, there's a variety of issues there. You know, sometimes the difficulties of working with law enforcement in in countries like that is just a lack of resources, lack of knowledge, lack of skills. For example, I was with the the head of the federal task force against human trafficking in uh, in, in a country in Latin America. And I was in his personal car going out to, to conduct an, an investigation. And he was asking me about a, a child pornography case and, and how we could, how we could, you know, help them to investigate it. And in, in the first thing I started to explain to him, he did, I realized he didn't know what an IP address was. And this is the head of the human trafficking task force over the whole country. Right. And so, you know, there's a, there's a huge lack of training. I mean, we've had to drop off police officers on duty, give them a ride home because they don't even have a vehicle. They don't even have a police motorcycle. Right. And so that, that's one huge issue. And so, you know, something that we often take for granted in, in America is that a lot of times law enforcement has at least the tools and the resources and the budgets that they that they need to, to at least operate on a basic level. And a lot of these countries, they don't even have that. They're making hardly enough to survive or less than enough to survive. And so corruption is just rampant, and it's also just part of the culture, right? So, yeah, that's been it's it's very difficult, oftentimes, to to know who you can trust. Usually, the rule is just don't trust anybody, um, because everybody has some kind of motive at some level, right? And uh, so there was, you know, there's I remember on on one one op, there was uh, we were pouring resources into it, and what we needed was some vehicles in order to to move about we needed vehicles for the, the, the op itself and the police department took it upon themselves to get us the vehicles and you know the money was spent but we never saw a single vehicle they gave us receipts for it that some someone's cousin probably wrote up but no actual vehicle and same thing we we needed a house we needed a property where we could conduct part of the op and we supplied the funds for it and then We were led to this some cop's house, personal house, so that they could take the money and not have to spend it way on the outskirts of the city, which put us in a very compromising position on the up might actually put me in a very compromising position simply because they wanted to keep some money. Right. And so a lot of times operational security is compromised by by that uh, lack of trust and by that corruption.
1: Well, and you know, maybe we should start there. You know, for people who not familiar with the term operational security, pretty straightforward. But how can we keep our operatives safe and their families safe after the mission, and all these kind of things, right? Which is yes. part of the reason that you and I are not saying where you were, when this was, who the other people involved were, you know, the, exactly. other, the organizations you were doing it with, right? Well, I think about I think about the operation. I think you're thinking about where you know Child Rescue is able to donate money to that and. You know, I know a bunch of the details of that one, and I'm thinking about, you know, my understanding visiting an aftercare facility down there. I remember meeting with one of the members, the intelligence police, who like had to wear balaclavas during those kind of ops, so the rest of the cops wouldn't know who they are, right? Right. And I had asked them how much they made per day, and then the person who you know the organization we were with that was facilitating. I was like, "Help me out with the tra- help me out here," because what I think she just told me is that her salary is two dollars and sixty cents an hour. That can't be right. I'm missing a decimal right. point, right? Like, what's that? Has to be mistranslated yeah. or something, right? Or miscalculated. Well, geez, no wonder. You know, you take a you take a a cultural okayness with corruption, and cops that are only making two dollars an hour. Like, right. You know, a bunch of white guys show up with 3000 bucks in their pocket or something right. like, geech, Right. Right. A hundred dollar
0: bill represents uh, a huge sum of money. Right. And yeah, that's and that's really that right there is what gives so much leverage to many of the perpetrators of this crime is that they know they can show up to these towns and cities with not even a huge amount of money by American standards. And they can pretty much buy the town they can they can do whatever they want and i've seen this time and time again you know foreigners whether they be americans or, or from whatever country they might be come in with some cash and feel that they can just buy up at whatever girls they want and if they get in trouble they just buy off the cops and so much of the time it works right and that's part of what we have to fight against is uh, bringing true justice to that situation and letting them know that you know you're not going to have impunity because we're coming after you. We're not going to let this happen. There's people out there that care. There's people out there that are fighting for these girls. And, you know, not everything is for sale, right? And that's, it's so incredibly easy uh, to just buy whatever you really want. If you have, if the price is right, right? Yeah.
1: Well, maybe before we dive into some of the specific stories, maybe we can give people a bit of an overview of what the process looks like you know, developing sources, gathering intel, doing the setup, running the op, doing the takedown, making sure the girls get somewhere where, you know, they can get to either government or a facility where they're actually going to get the ongoing aftercare they need. Can you walk us through a few of the elements there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to be very vague uh, because for, for you know reasons, like you mentioned, operational security and, and simply, you know, we just can't reveal very much of, of what we do. But, but a lot of times in in these, in these places, you know, the first step is to, is to develop allies, right? You have to know who can you work with. And sometimes you, sometimes US federal law enforcement is is interested, usually for political reasons, someone wants a promotion, someone wants to look good. And so they'll have enough motivation to go do, do, do an op in whatever country. And then it's really up to them to to find those allies if you are working with them because they have to be able to trust their law enforcement counterparts in country and so i've seen cases where the the u.s government or the u.s federal police officers start by putting up basically tests to figure out who they can trust right so you can kind of uh flash a couple bills in front of someone and see if they take it if they don't take it they pass that kind of that kind of preliminary you know filtering right once you figure out who you can work with, then you, you have to get buy-in from the DA, right? Everything you do better be approved by the DA. If you, as an operative, are doing something illegal, you better know that they have your back, right? And so if, if there's a groundwork that has to be laid. Before you get on, on the ground and start doing stupid stuff, you have to be sure that you're not going to be the one ending up in prison and that the people that do need to, to go to prison and be prosecuted that you'll have sufficient evidence to get them there. That's not gonna get thrown out in the court, right? And so, which is very different than when you're on a rescue case. When you're simply looking for one girl, which I've done more of that kind of work in, in the US, you don't really care. You just gotta get the girl, right? You're not looking for a prosecution. You're not trying to collect anything. You don't need to work with the DA. But when you're doing an op that involves both rescuing and prosecuting traffickers and perpetrators, you really have to have that, that groundwork laid out first. And so, and then every decision that you make, you have to run through somebody, right? So there has to be a level of accountability. We can't just be a bunch of Americans, you know, down, down in these countries, just do whatever we want to get the results. We have to make sure that we're, that what we're doing is approved by the, by the authorities on both sides. Right. So that's a, that's kind of step number one. And then step number two is really, you know, doing that street level undercover work, building up informants if possible and if needed. And uh, really just trying to kind of good old-fashioned investigate, right? Just figure out who these people are, how they're connected, uh, what kind of resources they have, and who, who the real bad apples are in the game, right? You definitely don't want to take down the, the poor taxi driver who's just, you know, driving people around and isn't uh, necessarily complicit. But you want to make sure that you get the people that have a serious malicious intent for, you know, selling human beings, particularly minors, and then everything that goes on from there, can't really tell you how we do it, but pretty much the end goal is to, is to number one, identify the victims, get them in, into an environment where they're going to be you know, escorted away by law enforcement, and then they're going to immediately you know, meet with uh, social workers, caseworkers who are going to figure out their situation on a one-by-one basis and figure out, okay, what's, what's the best uh, course of action for, for each girl? And then, obviously, the you know the, the perpetrators of the crime they're they're dealt with you know from they're handled by the police, and then you know pretty much start going through the legal process. And the DA is going to be focusing on how to press charges, right? So that's kind of a, a breakdown of that that style of op.
1: You, you know, I'm thinking about that, and and again, it it's funny to want to share with people things without jeopardizing other things, right? And uh, yes. you know, I'm thinking. Another element there that I know you guys deal with is in advance, figuring out how you're going to preserve, preserve that chain of custody on that evidence so that it will actually be admissible in court. And so, right. And like, yes. you know, people can use their imagination. They've they've seen enough movies and they, they've seen enough, you know, TV shows of undercover cops buying drugs. You know what I mean? There's elements of that that are in common, right? Absolutely. And yes. And things like, you know, recording the payments and figuring out how when... <laughs> when this ends up being somebody else's pocket, when they're arrested, how can we prove where it came from? And, you know, that, that type of uh, planning in advance that maybe people don't think of like, well, I was there, you know, you would think either testimony or so-and-so got caught red-handed, that should be enough. But it was interesting for me to learn from you guys about some of the things you're doing with the cops and the DA before it even starts to say, Hey, by the way, here's something we're going to do in advance so that you can have that for the prosecution. And Yes. You know, I think people not involved of it those details, you know, it seems so obvious. You caught them red-handed. Why would you need all that? But but it increases the probability of getting the conviction at the end and, and getting those predators off the streets, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that that's the name of the game. And and
0: it's really a lot of legwork to get there, right? It's it's not once again, it's not sexy. It's not all that fun a lot of the time and you're dealing with corrupt people along the way. You're wondering, you know, you're trying to make sure that there's no uh, dirty assistant in the DA's office throwing stuff out. Right. So, you really, there's a lot of things that can go wrong there. So, you really have to, you know, kind of just be as judicious as possible without being
1: an agent of the government. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that's something that was interesting to me. You brought up the taxi drivers. Right. And mm-hmm. in the real world, when it's not just the movies, it's interesting to find out how many other folks are, you know, kind of tainted by this or somewhat complicit in it. And, you know, correct me here, but, you know, like the bellhop or the concierge at certain hotels, the taxi drivers, the, mm-hmm. you know, the folks trying to get this foreign tourist money around there and, and a little kickback, right? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, once you start to kind of take it apart, there, there's a lot of moving pieces to it. And there's, like you said, you know, dollars coming in from the outside that can, that can speak volumes to a whole variety of people. And so you know, a lot of times it really comes down to to a cultural issue, you know, is this accepted by society? And a lot of the, the grassroots movements that have, that I've seen, you know, doing some street level work to fight this issue on the kind of awareness and prevention side, work directly with hotels, right? That's building up a network of hotels to number one, let them know, hey, this is what's going on. Here's the signs of trafficking. This is how you can recognize it. And also stand with us in organizing yourselves and and you know putting this logo on on your window to let people know hey this isn't a place where you're going to be able to you know commit an act with an underage girl and if you do you're going to be reported and and investigated and a lot of that you know know, kind of grassroots work is is really important because uh, there are a lot of people in society that you know might not see it as a big issue or just simply might not recognize it for what it is because it doesn't look like you know a girl being uh kidnapped in the back of a white van, as we might see in the movies, right? So just helping people to recognize, hey, this is actually what's happening. What if this were your daughter, right? And yeah, you're right. There there are so many moving pieces throughout society that, that can be complicit in it, whether they mean to or not.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about one of my favorite guys on the child rescue team who was with the FBI for 25 years, you know, and did a lot of extensive amounts of undercover work as a counterintelligence officer, you know, trying to catch spies in America, right? That's awesome. And, but he had done a dozen years in violent crime on FBI SWAT and some hostage negotiating stuff. And I remember asking him like, man, because he's so persuasive. This guy is just incredible at getting violent criminals to admit things and to, you know, inform him on things that is not in their best interest to inform him on, right? Right. And I'm like, I remember sitting with him going like, how how do you do that when you're working with somebody who is uh, you know doing some pretty despicable things in life how do you pretend how do you not let how you really feel about them ruin the situation you know and he said in his case like you know even in a case where he had a guy who had taken a school bus full of kids hostage right he said Hmm. even a guy like that where you know pretty reprehensible by by our standards he said, sure. that guy has still got humanity in him. And he said, I would just talk to him until I could figure out, find the humanity in that guy and I would ignore the rest and I would talk to that. And wow. I remember him talking about, you know, a Southeast Asian gang that had, had been involved in some murders and a guy who he had to recruit at a record store, you know. And so he, he was browsing the same store and, and, you know, ends up sidling next to him. And he starts talking about music, but my guy wasn't talking about pretend music. He was genuinely talking about things he was really interested in. And so it was the real version of him. Mind you, he was leaving stuff out. He wasn't mentioning that he was representative of the Federal Bureau of Investigation at the time, right? Right. But it was like the real him talking to something real in that person. And he thinks that's the reason he didn't give off the cop vibe and, and was able to have conversations where this guy ends up Ebony, some stuff that he probably shouldn't have admitted if he wanted to stay out of jail, you know? Right. You know, you just talked about having to work with a pedophile and, you know, you think about building relationships, whether we're having a meal with somebody or or any things that can happen in undercover. Can you talk about compartmentalizing and what's going on in your mental head game to be in the right place there and not jeopardize the mission and this kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely no expert on this subject matter. And I have tons to
0: learn, so I'd love to 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 know more about you know the kind of takeaways that that he's that he's learned. One book I've really uh, found interesting is uh, What Everybody Is Saying by Joe Navarro. Another FBI been, veteran. Yeah, another FBI. Yeah, exactly. Very similar story from what you just mentioned. And you know, this is definitely something that I I was thrown into this really without uh, formal training in any undercover uh, or investigative capacity, right? So you know, kind of just have to figure it out as, as you go. And something I, I quickly learned is that you have to immediately squash any emotions that you have towards this person, right? This is a, you know, this is someone who I could call a despicable human being. And yet I have to just completely not even think about that. And, and I think there's a lot of validity what you just said. This is a human being. They have clearly been through some stuff. And a lot of times they've been through a lot of stuff. Most of the traffickers or people who are making victims are
1: victims themselves, right? Do you know there was a study in Chicago came out? I want to say three four years ago that that over eighty percent of the pimps and traffickers arrested in Chicago were former victims. I believe that hundred percent. Yeah,
0: that's a that's a startling statistic, but it, it makes perfect sense from a psychological perspective, right? If those wounds aren't healed, they will, in you know, left alone, typically turn into that kind of behavior. And, yeah, unfortunately, it's, it's so prevalent. And, and, unfortunately, that's why we, I've seen so many women who have become traffickers, right? Some of the worst cases I've heard of are, are women. And once you understand what they've been through, how they were victimized, there's a level of sympathy that you just have to have right? No matter what they did going forward past that point, because they were an innocent human at some point that was on the receiving end. And you know, that I I think it's very important to, to remember that, to remember that everybody's human and everybody has the capacity to change. Sometimes it's very hard to believe that, particularly about a pedophile or somebody who is a serial victimizer of children. It's very difficult for me to believe that they can change, but I know that it's possible. I've seen amazing testimonies of, of people's lives that have been radically transformed so I know that it can happen and just to realize this is a human being this is someone who's made in God's image and no matter how corrupted and how you know uh, just obscene that their behavior has gotten they're they're a human being and so yeah I think just you know one of the one of the things that I I realized on that first undercover, stint with with that pedophile was to to just play play my story right and he was interested in in doing business and and he was telling me all sorts of corrupt business stuff that he did and uh, he told me all about how he had all the local politicians paid off he named them for me i mean we got tons of evidence on this guy and you know this was And, and
1: can i pause you and were you just yeah. like you guys? Were you guys just at a bar? Was this over a meal? Were you just hanging at the beach? Like what people? It's hard for people to imagine how yeah. how something like that could get revealed.
0: Right, right. Well, so okay, so that that one started at a bar early in the day, and I am not a drinker. I, I don't enjoy. I I don't go to. I've never been to a bar, you know, outside of this kind of uh, capacity. And but you know you got to drink. You just got to go with the guy and just kind of be a part of that that crowd. And so it started in a bar with a couple of his buddies, older American guys as well, similar similar types of people, and we're there for quite a while. And there was uh, there was an underage girl that that came through that was working at the bar that was clearly in, involved that he had clearly you know been been involved with and. So kind of just figuring out, okay, who these people are, what are they like? And we were just, you know, kind of playing a part of tourists who were also there for, you know, that type of fun, but maybe not at that level. In other words, not with minors and, you know, after a few hours and keep in mind, this is after months of other operators building up this level of rapport, right? We didn't just jump in and start hanging out with these guys. I just jumped into an existing case and you know from there we we went out hopped in his car which was a horrifying experience based on the amount of beers that he had consumed at that point and went down to a spot by the local school where these guys hang out as schools get out and so we we listened and watched as they talked about this habit of watching the kids leave the school and they they're they're hunting right that's what they're doing and so being there in the middle of that, I, at that point, I'm just trying to not say anything, right? And just, you know, because I'm a young guy, I don't, I don't have to pretend I'm into that. And you know, I'm just along along with the with the crew here, and I've got my stuff that I do. I don't know what these guys are up to, right? So I could kind of play a little, a little bit of disgust could be shown there, and wouldn't give anything away because most people would find that disgusting. So just trying to keep it as natural as possible. After that, we went we went to his house. And he was very, very private. And in fact, he had all the, the, the women that he normally would have coming in and out. Everybody was gone. So this was prepared. And he let us in, and it was an empty house. And there were several bedrooms, kids' clothing all over the place. There was, he was taking care of himself. He was protecting himself, right, uh, because he knew we'd be coming over. And spent a couple hours watching the news, hanging out. And at this point, he had, he was drunk enough to just start talking, you know, pretty much he would say anything at that point. And so, you know, that's something that, that can be used obviously against him. And we didn't really have to even provoke that. He just started, you know, just kind of ask a few questions and, oh, what's up with this? Don't show too much interest. But, you know, if you bring something up, follow it a little bit. And, uh, you know, it was it was a horrendous, uh, I don't know how many hours we were with him, but about a half of a day, maybe maybe six, seven hours. And man, my mind was fried after that. I had to just, get the heck out of there and, you know, take a nap and go talk to my wife and, you know, connect with other pe- normal people just to kind of,
1: you know, undo the damage there. Right. Okay. Well, before we end off with part one of the interview here, and, and we will be covering more of the stuff on part two, everybody. So tune back in, but this is not like your full-time job. Like you're, <laughs> you're not like career law enforcement, you're volunteering to do this stuff. You, can you talk a little bit about your work in tech and the orphanage that you and your wife are helping run in Tijuana?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So
1: yeah, you know, I've, I've
0: actually never stopped working as a software engineer ever since I started in 2012, ever since I graduated out of school. So, you know, I, I had a decisions to make as to, you know, am I going to go full-time? Is this going to be a career thing or, you know, full-time missions thing? And uh, we actually moved out of the U.S., Four and a half years ago, and started to kind of we, we moved to Costa Rica and started a sort of experiment with can I be you know tech leader, software engineer, uh, missionary, family man, and undercover operator all at the same time, and uh, you know quickly realized that I couldn't quite do all those with with excellence right, and so you know I, I haven't been doing the the undercover side of this for for I've, I've spent long periods of time where where I'm out of the game. Mostly because, you know, I'm focusing on, on the long-term as well and focusing on other aspects of, of ministry and and focusing on family and business. And I took a little break to, to try and start a business, realized I wasn't very good at that. So, you know, kind of learning to focus on my strengths. But yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey trying to wear, you know, five, six hats at the same time. And there's definitely, when I first started getting involved in this kind of work, I, I realized, You know, I I had this perception that this was for ex-cops, ex-military or active people who had really professional training. And I'm amazed by the people who have that level of training, what they can accomplish, right? And I love working with those guys. I don't like going into a super rough neighborhood in Latin America without some Marine or someone, you know, who who can take someone down in the blink of an eye or with an operative who has experience in, in, you know, warfare or something like that. I really appreciate being able to work alongside those guys. But I quickly realized that my tech background actually gave me uh, a huge, you know, uh, a role to play in this kind of uh, work, even as a volunteer, just kind of being there, having a little bit of know-how and being able to develop some tools and solutions. That's also been a really neat way that I've been able to,
1: you know, get involved. Well, I want to talk more about this on the next episode, but maybe as a closing thing, if, if people want to support the kind of work you're doing, can you talk to us about uh, this website, cityofangelstj.org? Yeah, absolutely. So
0: we, my wife and I, well, sorry, my wife and two kids and I moved to uh, Tijuana actually a year ago tomorrow. And uh, so we've been uh, living at, at an orphanage here in Tijuana called City of Angels. And uh, so, yeah, you can check out the website. And we're basically focused on providing a home and providing a family for, for kids who have been through horrible things and who really need that loving care. Pretty much all of our kids have, have been through multiple types of abuse. Most of them have been through sexual abuse. So really our, our focus is to, to give them a home and to really help them heal and really launch them into a, a successful life as adults who, who can have a family and a job and a stable life and a healthy spiritual life. And so, Yeah, it's kind of been what what we've been up to for for the last year. So you can check it out at cityofangels.tj.org.
1: Well, I think it's one of the things that I really admire about you. Mm -hmm. I think about the years we've known each other and just your deep personal connection. You know, a lot of people, they care about this cause, but they also spend a lot of time working to be seen as caring about this cause. And you've just got a genuineness that has obviously been magnetic to me to chase you around and ask you questions and want to support things that you've done. You know, I think about all the time on the show, I'm telling people, oh, you know, make sure to check out so-and-so's book or, you know, do, you know, check this out. You guys should donate or you guys should buy this, whatever. But I don't often like put out a sincere ask for people, but I I look at what you guys are doing right now. And you were telling me about the break-ins that you guys have been having and this $8,000 fence you need to put on the front to keep people safe. So you guys don't have to do these security patrols all night. And, and didn't you tell me you only need a couple thousand dollars more for that? Yeah. Is that it? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we've been going through, we've had a major
0: security issue recently here on the, on the orphanage compound. And so really, yeah, what we're trying to do is, is finish, you know, secure the perimeter with, with, with the proper wall and with, you know, uh, full, full protection and sell some security systems and alarms and stuff like that. So yeah, we, we just uh, threw that out on, on social media recently. There's been great reception, but yeah, we just need uh, a few thousand dollars more to meet that goal and to be able to fully secure this, you know, this compound, which really it's all of our staff families live here. My family lives here. And then of course, all the, all the
1: kids live here. So
0: yeah, any, any appreciate your, your willingness to kind of put that need out there and we're, we're, we're close. We just need a little push.
1: Well, and I'll talk to my wife tonight and we'll, we're going to donate to that. So
0: awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that.
1: Okay. Everybody, please tune back in for part two. Uh, we're going to ask Andy some more of these kind of questions.